Welcome everyone to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. Less, um, less extraneous words. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 104, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, comes to you via subspace radio and spore hub drive now and a bit of fleet news before this episode leaves orbit pete we were of course at the new york comic-con panel for star trek discovery indeed we were at new york comic-con for three out of the four days if you are listening to us on the pop culture podcast feed we're going to have tons of discussion and coverage coming about new york comic-con in the coming days if you're listening to us on the discovery feed we're going to have some uh, discovery specific news coming to you later this week as well pete any highlights you want to hit quickly though from the panel just seeing 13 members of the cast and crew at the theater at Madison Square Garden alone was cause for news. But more importantly, Matt, of course, we came away with some stuff from that. Beyond, of course, the fact that Jason Isaacs, thankfully, is a New York Metropolitans fan. Indeed, that might have been that might have been the highlight for you, Pete. Uh, one one character, or rather one actor that uh, we did not see there was Rika Sharma, uh, who at the at the time I was like, Pete, oh, this is kind of strange. I guess now we know why. Second, Pete, there was a quote by Akiva Goldsman, one of the producers. This is the guy who's the writer of Batman and Robin, the writer of Lost in Space. What did he say that blew our minds? We're going to get deeper into that with our New York Comic Con podcast later this week. Last on the list, though, Pete, before we finally punch it here, just want to say that uh, officially starting next week, we are going to be giving away more of the uh, officially licensed Star Trek Discovery uh, badges. Um, so if you leave an iTunes review for uh, either our pop culture podcast or the uh, just the Discovery feed, uh, you will be officially entered to win one of these uh, badges. We have three to give away. I believe it's an operations, it's a medical, and it's a sciences badge. And uh, do just uh, either send us a message through Facebook, Twitter, or email uh, to let us know what your uh, what your iTunes name is, so we can match up the winner to the uh, to the appropriate person. Get on it. And now for a mission briefing. Our teaser, Matt, which we were fortunate enough to see at New York Comic Con uh, a day early, begins with all sorts of thunder and uh, digitized, uh, looks like a landscape and there's crashing. Come to realize we are at the microscopic level seeing the uniform without a rank in Insignia, Matt, of course, because she doesn't get one, and the computer tells us she doesn't get one, of one Michael Burnham and her temporary assignment to science division. When we saw it at New York Comic Con, I was like, I don't know that we needed all the razzmatazz to show something being being synthesized. It's so kind of de rigueur for them in the 23rd century. You know, why are we making a big deal of it? 
Uh, it does occur to me, Pete, you know, here, this is an episode later on. We're talking about the microscopic and the macroscopic. So maybe it's super deep, man. And we just need time to let it sink in. As the scene unfolds, I love the mirror gag uh, where she has the, the holographic representation of herself to see how she looks in that uniform. Um, also, there's a slight zoom in as they do that. I think it's just to show that it's not your typical old-timey effect shot of film on one side and then film on the other so good stuff as tilly comes in with the pinging bag yeah the uh duffel style case there uh that she went to pick it up uh for burnham who was in the shower but uh you know her her new uniform she notes is better than her convict suit (laughs) Um, and again, Sylvia Tilly continues to, uh, keep things light and delight. Uh, but being fully clothed as she was, she went and picked it up there from the old depot and now presents it to Burnham, uh, in too many words. Indeed. Apologizing for too many words. That's that, that's, just to be clear, Pete, if somebody hasn't immediately watched the episode before before listening to us, you know, you're not being critical of the writing. It's Tilly herself being too critical of, of the too many words. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the bag, as it turns out, is in connection with the last will and testament of Captain Philippa Georgiou. Definitely an awkward moment. Hey, I thought I was bringing you cookies instead. You know, it's the kind of death stuff. Uh, with that, though, Burnham gets paged to the bridge, uh, which in retrospect gives us a nice bookend effect of Burnham opening the bag at the end of the episode, but we're not there yet. Uh, she goes to the turbo lift and Saru is there shocked to see her Pete. And, uh, we know mm-hmm. that because his threat ganglia pop up. Did you know they were th- called threat ganglia? Because you're going to, this scene mentions it <laughs> thrice. Yes. Uh, but again, for something that has greater, meaning in the episode and i think that's why to this point this is my favorite episode and the way that everything comes back the the symmetry in the writing of this particular episode really has me excited uh i like too that that in addition to his um you know to the threat ganglia popping up oh he's a prey species he's a nervous nelly that's how he was presented uh, in the, the first episode here, he's a little chuffed. He's unconvinced as to the wisdom of keeping her. And that's something that they're also going to return to later. It really is for, this is an episode that on the one hand, it is your basic kind of Star Trek sort of mission, you know, understand the alien, find the good in others. In this case, the, the, the Ripper and go in there and save the day with some naval style heroics it's got all that and then it's got this this deeper stuff going on as well uh the turbo lift arrives on the bridge where oh man pete the klingons are attacking as you noted at new york comic-con the bridge is not rocking though and it's interesting i don't know if their intention was to create a scene where the gravity of the situation does not sell since of course it is a simulation as we learn pretty quickly once the discovery gets destroyed so to speak but it is remarkable having seen it twice now how it the situation there it, it just does not feel as perilous no and i think that's i 
part of the situation in terms of, you know, me poking you and saying this is a simulation before we knew it was a simulation when we were watching it because they do such a good job selling when the ship takes damage and all right, everybody's going to go to the left. All right. Now everybody's going to go to the right. Um, that you feel in on it in addition to some kind of camera movement. And here everything is flat as if the turbo lift wouldn't be indicative of a red alert. Um, yeah, I, I think they mean for you to be able to see through it so that it's not such a fake out when uh, it is and then they die. At the notion of their their simulated death, Lorca gives the standard, you let me down speech. And that's not me being critical of the speech. It's just kind of the standard, you, you know, you, you did not do this well. Uh, do it again. Do it again. Um, and indeed, Saru is told to run the simulation again. Lorca tapes, takes Burnham into the bowels of the ship. Uh, into an area that doesn't normally keep the lights on, which I thought was interesting. Here, you know, we've seen the 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 ship packed with all the crew and all the all those shiny silver uniforms. This is a science ship. There's mysterious black badges. This is the this is the the, the section where people don't go uh, on the way. Well, what about that being? Is is there a, a way? Does the computer know who is on its way and it's keeping it dim because he's there and slightly lighting it because he's with another person now? I wonder. You know, it felt like a story point in terms of his damage to his eyes. Uh, I I think it could be that. It also could could be just communicating that normally. You know, normally one is not, you know, normally people are not found here. I think, I think it serves both story points wonderfully. Um, regardless, though, as they're walking down the hall, he talks about having a green crew. They're unprepared for war. Uh, and then they arrive at his menagerie. The weapons wall has all sorts of uh, ways of killing on display. We still see that Cardassian vole on the table. We still see the Gorn skeleton in the background, all fun stuff. But Pete, it's all about the holding cell. And uh, tell us a little bit about the beastie in there. Or or is it a beastie? They've met before. Of course, it is the beast from the previous episode uh, that has the same natural aversion to light as Lorca. Having killed dozens of Klingons, not a scratch on it from their bat uh, He wants to know about the material in its claw. Uh, that its hide can withstand a phaser set to kill. He needs Burnham, uh, who has this xenobiology background, to find out about it and weaponize it as we get to our title card. Uh, and indeed, some of the uh, some of the takeaways from that title card sequence. Uh, this is an episode that is written by Jesse Alexander and Aaron Eli Coletti. And uh, an episode directed by Olatunde Osunsami, uh, a uh, Nigerian film and television produ uh, uh, producer and director who's, uh, Pete, done some stuff uh, that you've seen with uh, Falling Skies and whatnot. So uh, certainly a, uh, a great addition to this episode. And while not necessarily an action-oriented episode per se, I would say Knowing the pedigree there with Falling Skies, it definitely falls in line with that trauma. 
when we get into the uh, episode proper, the story takes us back to the, the binary star battlefield, or rather a holographic representation of it. Uh, Vok, who, lest we forget, is the uh, albino Klingon, he is talking slash praying to Takovma. Still dead, but still, you know, Vok still has the relationship with the deceased Takovma. Talking about followers feeling abandoned, how they need guidance. Uh, at this point, Lorel comes in wondering if he's an artist with all this uh, all this usage he's making of the, the holographic representation of the area. No, no, Pete, he is scanning the sky looking for, for a part to help fuel their ship. Yeah, the sarcophagus ship six months out here is still in that space, which I found rather interesting. You know, the war's been on and the vessel that uh, started it in addition to its captain being dead is is just sitting there. But as we find out, there's much greater significance to this vessel for the Empire as a whole later on. Um, But the discussion that they have here centers on the Shenzhou, which is within range. But, Matt, they abandon it with its uh, dilithium processing unit, which the sarcophagus ship could certainly make use of. Well, Vok won't hear of that. He's not going to let that other... Blasphemy. Yes. All that other technology won't, you know, he, he won't allow it to touch their proud Klingon ship. How can a ship remain pure? How can they remain pure if they assimilate alien technology? This is not the Borg we're talking about here. Um, and Lorel quickly striking as a pragmatist, something that is a through line throughout this episode. Uh, also referenced, uh, got to say sorry to a bunch of our listeners, including our pal Jen. Uh, Vok had picked the flesh off Georgiou's skull, and uh, that's a rather horrific uh, mental image to have uh, concerning the deceased captain's body. Yeah, I mean, we we did find out, um, and and it was a great gag. Uh, the first question asked, the first or maybe one of the first questions asked at New York Comic Con uh, was a woman in a mask who asked about, you know, when we'd see, would we see more of of Captain Georgiou? And of course, it it was um, uh, Michelle Yao. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, they they made reference that uh we will be seeing again uh the, the character and and some more of her uh in fact she told uh Lorca to take care of her baby girl or that she would come back for her but uh it seems that it's only going to be in holograms or in flashbacks particularly now that she was a meal that was both uh frightening and effective as far as what the klingons did with a foe here we've never heard about them eating um enemies before uh and i love that laurel points out well you you won't take their technology that will save us and feed us but you will eat them Well, you mentioned Laurel. We get more of her here. Uh, she notes that she is from, uh, or at least part of her. She's she's got the Takovma side, and she's got the other side of her family, a House of Watchers. And as a child, she was given a bat. House weapon. Mokai. Well, of course, Pete. Everybody knows it was House Mokai. I, I didn't want to talk <laughs> down to anyone. It's not that I missed it, or it's not that 
all access was really buffering a lot for me tonight. Uh, anyhow, Pete, I don't want to cleave apart the audience, nor did Laurel want to cleave <laughs> apart her own spiritual heart to, to use the bat left to choose one house or the other. She, Pete, wants to build a bridge, not, you know, a wall. So she then builds on that and says, let's build a bridge to get on over to the Shenzhou, uh, or rather the, the, the Senjo. I'm pronouncing it more properly, Pete. I'm working on that. Uh, she wants to get that dilithium processor, get back to the, you know, to, to, to the Klingons. Yeah. And, uh, tasks him with going into this graveyard here and, and bringing this for the good of the people, Matt, for the good of the people. Back we go to the discovery uh, where uh, Landry comes down to the menagerie, uh, and it's it's a really effective scene. It's a reminder that uh, well, first of all, Landry says that Lorca wants Burnham's science and Landry's tactical together to work on this creature. Um, it's a nice way to slowly put the the foot on the gas pedal in terms of Lorca's wants with this creature, and something that obviously gets revisited in the episode. Anyhow, Pete, uh, Landry decides to call the creature a ripper. No, she's going to call it ripper <laughs> like, uh, you know, Rex or or something like that. And uh, here for the first time, we hear the the name that had kind of floated around the Internet a little bit that uh, Burnham says this has quite a few characteristics of a tardigrade uh, micro animal obviously in macro form, but the question is how did it get aboard the Glen? There was no notes of a stowaway on the captain's log. They had no breach. There were no unregistered micro uh, biological agents in the transporter buffer or any other decks. Which, you know, we, we got so much kind of like sci-fi tech in the last episode, which I think, you know, we were all able to follow the, the basis of easily on first viewing, even if you don't understand spores and the real stamets and all that. This is an episode that is is starting to sound like that at this point, but very quickly the science gets just perfectly manageable, which which I think is part of the wonder of the episode. Um, but Landry at this point wants... To, to to use the creature for its attacking parts, you know, the, the cutting claws, the rage glands, the monster jams, whatever it can give them. You know, she, she reminds Burnham that's what they are there for. Even though Pete Burnham wants to seek out this new life, study it, and not prejudge it as a monster, which is why, Pete, I'm going to start calling it the creature. Yeah, and it's about this time that the the great connection is made uh, between the Tardigrade and Burnham as far as their place. Uh, that something gets judged by a single incident in its past and you suggest that it is that thing when it was done in self-defense. Wait a minute, Pete. That could describe both Burnham and the 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 creature. It's the it's the mirror that Star Trek holds up to us and the mirror at the beginning of the episode. It's all it's but all not mirror mirror, Matt, yet. At least yeah. 
not yet. Uh, <laughs> the scene wraps up with Landry reminding uh, her that Burnham is there to make Lorca happy, come up with weapons possibilities. Uh, we then move to the ready room where uh, Lorca is chomping down on, on some seafood, Pete, which only in retrospect, you know, looked like it was crab's legs or something like that. Kind of similar shaped food to the wacky alien uh, food that the Kling, you know the Klingon food that that we see later in the episode. I don't know how intentional that is, but and I'm certainly not I'm I not think... suggesting Lorca is eating Klingon food because he's <laughs> secretly a Klingon or something like that. Just a little a little well, mirror yet again. You study the enemy, as he notes. He's he's got all those weapons of war. He's he's trying to be like them, become like them, fight a war against them so wait are, are, are you throwing out there that he is eating legit klingon food just like william t Riker will in 75 or 80 years <laughs> to better know the klingons uh gah but matt with admiral uh cornwell here coming over the old hollow phone uh didn't realize of course he was eating the breach of protocol uh but we jump right in here distress call from a planetoid of corvon 2 a mining colony uh, yeah, he knows it. Of course, it's a near the Aneto system, and uh, there's a distress call that is sent through. They're under attack. Their patrol ships have been destroyed. Their magnetic shield is under bombardment. They're going down in six hours, Matt. We've we've got a clock going. They need immediate evac, and it cuts out. And Pete, I'll just add that it is uh, made clear to us. It's not just, you know, adorable dad with kid in the background and other people saying, ah, uh, Corvon 2, responsible for something like 40% of dilithium coming out of the area. You know, there, there's that stat for given the Federation. to say. So they for need the Corvon 2. Um, with that... Lorca says that the discovery is ready. We have no doubts. Cut to engineering where Stamet says there's no way we can go, Pete. Yeah, uh, I love, of course, that our, our captain is, is gung-ho. Stamets, of course, is not. He's, he's seen the damage. If you go too soon with this uh, very theoretical, partially operational spore drive, they've never done a jump anywhere near as big as this before and the debrief that what happened in actuality to the Glen was that they had hit a hawking um what was this here radiation uh, band i believe fi firewall uh when they exited the mycelial plane so that's why uh all of the bi biologicals on board spun out uh, can we prevent this? Lorca wants to know, uh, yes, but it's going to take trial and error. There is the tech that they got from his counterpart, Strahl's, uh, lab. Um, but it won't load completely. Did, was there some kind of supercomputer over there beyond the already supercomputer on a Federation starship, uh, to make these calculations. And I love that Stamets is still, uh, you know, giving him the attitude, you know, while being chased by the monster was distracting, he would have noticed a supercomputer. Um, but the uh, the other thing that they got 
that seems to be missing a part or something from the uh, reaction cube. They just don't know what it does. They, you can't rush sound science, I think, is, is the big takeaway beyond the character stuff in this episode. Um, and they're in a bind not knowing what to do in this emergency. And Saru is calling out the minutes now that they have until Corvon two falls. It's a remarkable scene. And I don't mean to boil it down to its most, its most basic parts, but for all of the technological stuff that you just referenced, I have no doubt that the Hawking, the Hawking thing is a real thing that we could, we could dig into and learn about, you know, astral physics and whatnot. But it also it's so easily digestible to say they they came out of the spore travel, hit a thing that ruined it all. Uh, oh, they have that other technology thing. Don't know what it connects to. We need a supercomputer. They use that phrase supercomputer a couple of times to really hammer home what it is that they're looking for. So later on, when it's a biological supercomputer, it all it all fits. It's just it, it's a remarkable construction of it all. Um, and, and certainly a credit to a credit to the show there. Uh, with that, the story moves back to the uh, the Klingon sarcophagus ship where Cole arrives. You know, the guy with red on his face that two or three episodes ago Pete said, you know, he was really distinctive. I bet he's going to be back. And we said, oh, that's Ken Mitchell who's been on Twitter. Uh, I, I think <laughs> he'll be back. Um, yes, he he is treated by Vok and company as an honored guest, but no, no. Cole bows to them. He comes humbled. Uh, Vox says only foes bow here. So there's lots of everybody's genuflecting to everybody else, um, which which I wonder if that will last the whole time. Uh, <laughs> Cole says that he's there for what he, what Vox House's ship has that no one else has, the cloaking technology, which uh, – yeah. let, let me just say again, Pete, cloaking technology that I'm pretty sure – for amongst these all all these pure Klingons here that they didn't get from Klingon people. I think it's Romulan-based. At least that's the Trek lore. Um, but they're certainly not going there now. Fox says that they're almost patched up. They just need two things, Pete. Two little things. The lithium processor. That's tough to come by. Uh, and food because everybody's starving. Yeah, and I love the way that this scene is structured in the early going, um, that he kneels to Valk and Laurel, but, uh, it's, it's Valk with the teachings, the wisdom of Takuvma, uh, that, you know, no one kneels, but our foe welcomes him and, uh, they're going to work together. They're going to remain Klingon, Matt, remain Klingon. Keep Klingons great again or something. Uh, the scene concludes with uh, this affirmation that what belongs to House Takuvma belongs to House Cole too. You know, since they're all just brothers and sisters of the cause, man. Uh, we get an act break and return from it with Stamets calling up to the bridge. The spore drive is ready. It's primed. It's it's sporing. Maybe even they know where they're going to go. Uh, that's the, the, the <laughs> Stamets is really hopeful. Um, with this black alert is called. It still is scary looking, but now we kind of have a better understanding of what it is. 
Uh, really cool shot of the rear area of engineering where I think it's meant to be the actual, you know, dilithium, uh, the, the, the mark, the matter-antimatter reaction chamber. That's kind of boxed off. Um, we also, Pete, get a shot in the menagerie of the creature starting to to go a little a little crazy in there. Yes. That Pete, they jump. Everything's okay, right? <laughs> of course they are. Uh, the sensors didn't pick up what they jumped in front of this being an O-type star that they're now stuck in the gravity well of because they were too hot. This is not... Uh, Corvan 2, of course. Uh, wrong off-ramp, Lieutenant Stamets, which was a great line out of uh, Lorca. But his nav buffers overloaded uh, and, you know, some, some back and forth before they ultimately clear the gravity well and warp out by traditional means. Um, it's, it's a great scene of peril. It sees us, uh, you know, with the the circular ring now on the outside of the uh, discovery uh, ramping up and then jumping out. Um, but they're able to do it, but, but just not enough. And in all of this Stamets sustains an injury. He does. And, and let me just geek out over the tech here, Pete, because, you know, back, back in the day, you know, Jordy was my guy. So I, I, I always, I always, you know, my, my Star Trek character, if I ever had one, I'd be in engineering too. Can we assume that the spinning outer uh, disc then is mechanical in nature and not inhabited? I don't know that. Uh, I would tend to say that all the space on a Starfleet vessel goes to everything it can and you know other than the nacelles where yes have we seen them put people in there during enterprise because they were going through thing that story demanded to put them in a tunnel for two weeks of course and what was a well-told story but uh we know that that people don't go back basically in the in the tailpipe <laughs> Uh, so I think, I think there's, I think there's peeps in, in this spinning outer hall. Ooh, well, <laughs> I think I might get a little space sick if all of a sudden everything started to spin like that, but I digress. Pete, that's why I'm meant to be in engineering where everything's, I don't know, a little more settled. Regardless though, the story. That's why goes... I sit in the chair. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, uh, back in the menagerie, Burnham is curious about the the animal's reaction to the spore drive. Uh, Landry reminds her yet again, stay on task. The job is to weaponize it. Don't get too sciencey. Uh, we then move Pete to sick bay, uh, where Stamets, Stamets has uh, had the worst of a head fracture already healed, and uh, and we get the introduction here of the doctor for the first time. Yes, this is Doctor. Kluber and uh, we will later learn this is uh, Lieutenant Stamets significant other and they have a little tense back and forth but you know I'm projecting the knowledge that we know they're together Wilson Cruz was at our panel yesterday and, and said you know the, the one thing he was allowed to say is that uh, um, he would you would get to see him with his space boo 
the the in the next episode. But uh, he's fixing a, a bent nose here, which was a, a really well done digital effect. Made uh, Stamets look appropriately messed up. Uh, but if he doesn't stop moving, he's going to end up looking like a Tellarite. <laughs> can, can one human say that to another just in casual conversation? You're going to look like a Tellarite. I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> I just I don't know. Um, to me, to me, it's kind of not cool. But but whatever. Um, Lorca comes in, he takes a few pot shots at Stamets for having gotten them lost. None of it, none of it is over the top. I really, really, really like this Lorca Stamets relationship because clearly Stamets doesn't like Lorca, but I think Lorca is a strong enough commander, a strong enough boss to kind of not care what the underling thinks about him as long as Lorca feels he's getting a hundred percent. Um, he's not in there to, you know, he's not, this isn't the coach taking the, taking the clipboard and breaking it over his knee kind of thing. It's just like, Hey dude, you screwed up. You didn't, you didn't tell us you were going to screw up. You didn't anticipate screwing up what's going on. You've let us all down. Um, and it's at this point that Stamets talks about being a science, a scientist on a science vessel, even mentions Pete. And I was a bit taken aback by this, that this ship was built to his perhaps not specifications, but is built to service his science in particular. And uh, he might even, Pete, just leave and take all his spores and go home. Yeah, uh, which I was really kind of shocked. I mean, I dig Stamets' steely sarcasm that he's used a number of times already in the first two episodes in which we've known him. Uh, but to a captain, to tell him that, I'm going to take <laughs> the very principle around which this and and its sister ship, the Glen, were designed, uh, and and take it home to take my my space ball and and go home to to this man who has, you know, some kind of Ahab esque damage from the war there in the middle of fighting, uh, you know, Stamets does not back down and. Uh, you know, that we were in this scene and he's essentially bickering with his uh, significant other. And now he's got his boss, his captain here. Um, it's a it's a thoughtful and, and well done scene when it comes down both to the conflict and the, the premise of what it is they're trying to do aboard the ship. You know, I've I've in the past looked at Lorca through the lens of him being uh, like a J. Robert uh, Oppenheimer type. You know, he's he's helping create this incredibly destructive thing for good, I think. Um, and the way you were just kind of reviewing Stamets there, it reminds me uh, of perhaps a less familiar name, uh, Arno Penzias, who uh, you'll know his work when I reference it in a moment. It's actually, uh, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Penzias once. Um, wow. He won a Nobel Prize in physics for helping establish the Big Bang Theory and not the show The Big Bang Theory. Um, <laughs> and uh, his when I, when I met him, it, it, he was partially renowned in the the bell labs and at&t world as pete when he went to meetings you know because this is all the, the the suited you know high muckety mucks he would go to meetings with no tie and wearing boat shoes no socks you know why he was able to do that pete 
because he helped establish the Big Bang Theory of cosmology and he has a Nobel Prize. There you I go. Bring, so I bring this back to Stamets. It's a long way of saying maybe Stamets is able to give this sass because he's the only guy left of the two guys who had this theory. So Lorca has to has to take some guff and just say, all right, you've had your moment. Let's get going here. And I think he knows how to push Stamets' button, hence he leaves and they broadcast shipwide the last message from Corvan 2. And we see this montage of all of our players hearing it, Burnham, Landry, and Stamets as he heads back to engineering to figure out the fix I'll just mention quickly before before Lorca did that broadcast, Lorca wondering if Stamets will be up there with the Wright brothers, Elon Musk, and Zephram Cochran. Star Trek, <laughs> Star Trek going big on on Musk's, I mean, potentially world-changing view of the future, but Star Trek seeing a kindred spirit there in Mr. Musk. How about the guy who invented PayPal being referenced by a TV show that has a future in which we no longer use money. Well, I I dare say I think Star Trek was was being a bit more optimistic as to some of the hypertube stuff and some of the the yes. space travel stuff, but th there is that irony too that will Elon Musk uh, help usher in a Star Trek-esque future uh in part because he's going to take what is it 1.5% of every PayPal purchase goes to goes to the company that kind of thing. Regardless, though, I know Pete, when it comes off the top for us, I, I think of Elon Musk first and all and, and how I'm helping SpaceX. You know what? That's a great way to put it, Pete, that the people who support us on Patreon that is made possible through PayPal. And and so some of that money, it's not just going to a big faceless banking corporation. Maybe it is making its way to SpaceX and make it, maybe it is making its way to HyperTube and maybe it is making its way to all you know to, to these electrical grids and whatnot that which by the way you know he's he's looking to help some of these hurricane damaged areas by here's the opportunity to upgrade your infrastructure to all solar so maybe pete maybe pete this little podcast is helping change the world in a indirect way regardless though pete are you ready to go back to the menagerie i am we are we are there, and uh, the whole the whole peril of uh, Corvan two motivates Landry to to put a sedation spray into the holding pen. She grabs herself a knife. She grabs herself a gun. She's sure that the creature is sleepy deepy now. And at this point, the creature promptly attacks her. Great VFX shot of it going up on the mm -hmm. ceiling. Her being, you know, thrown around by a la uh, thrown around like a rag doll. This is when I started Mauled. to have a, a, a sense of why the actress was not at New York Comic Con. Uh, Burnham calls for full lights. That gets it back in the pen. Quick, put the wall back up. Quick, transport to sick bay. Pete, is she going to make it? She's not. Uh, we don't get the uh, the the no more uh, life signs situation, but the uh, the the shake of the head from the chief medical officer there uh and then in dialogue that her death not be in vain matt so obviously uh, uh goodbye to uh, rika sharma uh great addition while she was on the show and uh 
her her death here does a couple things. It shows us that uh, the animal was threatened, which is used obviously in the rest of this episode and creates uh, upward mobility for the people on, on this ship. Something we were speculating on the ride home yesterday when we were talking about, you know, well, <laughs> what's going to go on ultimately uh, throughout the course of the season. And they wanted to make sure that people understood, uh, you know, cast members are not safe. We've, we've lost, Georgiou. We've lost to Kovma on the other side. We're going to go back in a moment. We've now lost Landry. Loss is part of this. Uh, risk is part of the game. If you want to sit in that chair, said Captain Kirk. The story moves to the Shenzo, which surprised me. Uh, the bridge exposed to space, it appears. We have a, a Klingon there. Uh, very quickly, the atmosphere is normalized, which makes sense, Pete. We need to see the makeup on these Klingons here, regardless of where they are on the ship. Uh, a, a hollow pick of Georgiou and Burnham is found, and uh, it's at this point that Laurel, who's in engineering, is brought into the conversation. She has found the dilithium processor and uh, notes that they must move carefully, lest they end up with the rest of the Black Fleet. Great line there. Uh, and she's also talked up as astute, indeed, perhaps more astute than Vok. Um, but very quickly here, we learn that Laurel does not want to be the leader. She is happy to stand behind Vok as an enforcer, as a helper. And Pete, I know that it was said at New York Comic Con that every, every possibility of characters, every combination of characters is possible, but there's a little sizzle in the air there between Laurel and, and Vok, I dare say, through, the, you know, through my human eyes. Sonequa Martin-Green said they are doing everything, and here, yes, you completely pick up, uh, as even Vok does, on the the sexual tension uh, um Lorel is a, a a motivated sort and she talks here about um you know being a, a defender being somebody uh who, who can be behind the action um and i can't wait to see more and more of mary chifo's character here who uh you know she calls him lord and uh you know the 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 bigger things that valk worries about she's worried again about the practical it makes me wonder pete if maybe maybe laurel at some point is going to ask valk if they want to get some some Ractigino, and I mean that in the Luke Cage sense for those of us, those of you who followed <laughs> us from that podcast. Uh, but Pete, let me ask you a more serious question. Do you think that they can uncouple? Because we're talking about the dilithium I... processor here. Can they uncouple it? Also, I think she's given a double entendre there. Oh, Just my. Just a little. Yes, uh, but they're able to get the dilithium processing unit out here um and you 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 sense that laurel uh though she was a disciple and and at Takuvma's side for quite some time and that's what this this scene does effortlessly as well is to give us you know the the back 
background, barely knew Valk to Kovma did, uh, but it was this purity of devotion that attracted him, you know, to to anointing him as a successor, as a torchbearer. But here, Laurel is upwardly mobile. She can be enforcer, defender, campaigner, um, which which makes what ultimately happens. Ah, we, we see or or do we? Makes me wonder, would Laurel put her feet on the couch in the emperor's office but that's that's a question for another time back we go to Lorca's menagerie someone is at the door it's saru uh burnham so kind admitting that she sometimes misjudged him underjudged him and they walk towards that you know that that opening of the the holding pen then she coolly notes that saru's threat ganglia are not up therefore there is no threat what with mm -hmm. uh, her her contrite words, her false words, and the creature being inactive, uh, and it, it's a powerful moment where uh, where she's kind of coldly and logically brought him there with kindness to show that the creature is no predator. Yeah, and he tells her that she has not changed; that she will fit in perfectly with Lorca which is the strongest statement he's ever made against his captain as first officer here before ready to protect him. And I'm going to protect him better than you did, uh, Burnham. And now, uh, he's, you know, we know that he doesn't, uh, you know, fear danger in the way that Saru does biologically. Uh, but, um, sensing certainly some, some distance in that relationship, unlike the the warm motherly uh, role that uh, uh, Burnham enjoyed with uh, Georgiou. Yeah, it is so rare, so so rare in Star Trek to have the the sense of any space between um, the the captain, and the first officer, other than the space of rank. You know, that's not to say that I imagine. Picard and Riker were, were going to 10 forward and grabbing beers all the time. There was that distance um, of the leader and of the, the, the next one in line, the first one to be led, if you will. But, but it was professional and it yeah. was grandfatherly. And th this is a wartime captain, something we've seen, but we've never seen the disconnect from the number one and the other number one in a way that Saru is showing this to Burnham here. Yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, it certainly works. We want everybody to be peacefully all on the same page, but it, it just adds this sizzle where it's like, Oh yeah. Star Trek has never really done this before. This is, this is a nice dramatic addition. Um, and Sarah, of course, calls her out on this. He thinks that she will fit in perfectly with captain Lorca. And then he struts on out. Um, and, and there's this question, though, how did the creature get into the Glen? And then we quickly cut to, because this is an episode that cooks with speed, Tilly mm -hmm. has brought spores to Burnham to, to the same set location. They're kind of making use of the set, certainly. Why has Tilly done this? She can't help the people on Corvan 2 if the Discovery can't get there. So she's got a spore, a spore tube uh, behind Stamets' back and brought it down. Yeah, again, the, the experimentation, the idea we're, we're going to find out 
uh, Landry had weapons before. This must have been self-dispense, self-dispense, <laughs> when she was dispensed, self-defense. Uh, and this is a scientific method. This is uh, observation and experimentation to satisfy scientific curiosity. With that, Burnham approaches the gate, telling uh, Tilly to stay put. Would have been nice if she gave Tilly the option. You may also leave just in case I'm right wrong. Um, <laughs> How's she going to be a captain one day if she's, you know, uh, a ripper snack? <laughs> uh, Burnham then uh, lets down the, the forest field, offers up the spores as a gift, as food. It's not quite clear on on the initial viewing of this first scene. Uh, but the pen is opened and the creature doesn't jump. It is certainly an effectively tense moment, and the creature still looks uh, fantastic. It really seems to take in the spore air, not quite breathing it, not quite eating it. Um, Pete, did I, did I see properly through my occasionally oddly buffering CBS All Access experience uh, that <laughs> did it seem to give Burnham a loving lick, or was that just the pixels being funny? No, it kind of went up there with that, uh, you know, t- tube type of proboscis and uh you know there were there was a little uh affection there was definitely a hello and then we wind up in engineering here with stamets and they're looking over the the footage from tilly's tricorder and um there were things blown out from engineering pete take it take us through take us through burnham csi here take us through all the evidence follow (laughs) the evidence take me take me to a conclusion a hypothesis it is a cbs show matt they do like their procedural elements um but closing in here on on the uh info from the glenn uh, on the screen there, there was something inside the reaction cube that blew it out. So the speculation leads to uh, with the tardigrade having gone crazy as they were going to uh, the, the spore drive, um, they were trying to keep something in. Yeah, and this is the scene uh, to which I had referred earlier where it is just so, you know, despite we have all of this, um, all this kind of bleeding edge sci-fi stuff going on here, they just spell it, spelled out for you, you know, was the creature kept in there? Um, and then there's kind of this, this, um, this this ripple effect where burnham notes that they were using dry spores not those uh, grown in the glen but they had great quantities of it maybe ripper eats these spores travels to them on the mycelian web uh which is to say you know it appears out of nowhere in, in our uh, plane of uh, of observation and maybe pete it is the supercomputer referenced multiple times in a previous scene so maybe this is the x factor that's that's missing pete let's beam that ripper into the spore forest see what happens yeah uh but the difference between the two ships uh as to where uh the tardigrade may have come from um in terms terms of what the Glen was doing and the way that they have their own forest, not on their lower decks where they're seemingly storing their mushrooms dry on the Glen, uh, but on Discovery, there's a locale for 
them to uh, further experiment with this creature. With that, we go back to the Klingon ship. Pete, it's chow time. Cole has brought over all the favorites. You got your gawk. You got your other icky stuff. Um, and it turns out, Pete, that <laughs> the other hungry... gawk. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Got to make sure it's fresh, though. Turns out that the hungry bellies just needed filling. That's all it took before a Vox crew jumped over, became Cole's crew. Cole, who notes that, yes, the great houses are joined together now, dumb dumb. I'm editorializing here but i think that's <laughs> what cole is saying hey dumb dumb everybody's joined together against this war in the federation as soon as it's over it's house versus house the house leader who has the cloaking device will rule when it's all over it's like wow you can't i mean i it would be nice pete if the klingon uh, empire stayed together without infighting so on and so forth but you can't fault him on the logic here and then it's like hello that's what he's here for he's here to get the klingons the cloaking device the klingon people or 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 more than this one ship and all it took apparently was a little bit of gawk and blood wine to sway the loyalty of um valk and laurel's starving crew um and despite being again the torchbearer uh you know, the, the privilege that allowed a human to kill Takovma, turning this all back on uh, Valk is Cole. And, you know, I don't think if we ever really saw he was being genuine when he came over and genuflected. Uh, but there's Laurel. She comes across. She hands the dilithium processing unit to uh, Cole grabs herself a drumstick of something that I'm sure has three syllables and, you know, Pete, some, uh, some I'm going to give you one syllable. It's probably some roast targ. They take, they, they have their pets and then they eat them. I'm quite sure it was targ. <laughs> I just know it deep down. It's, it's likely, uh, what it was. Uh, and, and here the betrayal, Matt to son of none seemingly complete. Yes. But hey, let's uh, let's let's beam them into the the grave of the enemy. Yes, we get an act break. We come back. Lorca is ready for them to try again, and it's a nice kind of rah rah scene. I found I found myself. I I saw last week's episode three times. The third time was earlier today, and maybe it's just the magnetism of Jason Isaacs, who you know who we saw at the convention and whatnot. Um, He's less the black-hatted, you know, Malfoy villain than than I expected. He's he's not the he's not the jerk that you hate, the jerk boss that you hope is going to get out of there as soon as possible. Um, yeah, he's tough, but th this is a great rah rah moment. We're going to do this again. Stamets energizes the Ripper into the reaction cube. Okay, now that now the reaction cube is making more sense. Uh, the tech mm -hmm. taken from the Glen activates. Okay, that's making more sense. I don't know the science behind it, but there's the box. There's the arms. There's the arms to hug the Ripper. Then we get the tech something somethings to the something. The map is complete. You know, all we needed was that one little thing that BB-8 had or whatever. And now Lorca says the <laughs> ship is ready. Now, now we can go find uh, either Corvan 2 or Luke Skywalker. What's it going to be, Pete? 
<laughs> I think it's going to be Cordman too. It'll it'll be the uh, that part of it being that they're not going to that other universe. Well, it's it, Pete. It could be the same universe. It's just <laughs> and it's it's a long time ago in the galaxy far far away. But this is true. Cut to Corvan too. Um, the shield is at three percent. No, Pete. The shield is at two percent. Update, Pete. The shield is down. Old school birds of prey continue to swarm. Then the disco appears in the sky, holding tight. And you can just read on Lorca's face. He's he's not saying steady, steady, but the sentiment is steady, steady. While everybody else is just saying, "Why aren't we acting?" Uh, he's waiting for that new round of spores to be loaded in. He's waiting, he's waiting. And then they spin out. And that was a shot of the spinning out that that certainly was from a different angle. I was at, you know, full HD finally uh, and, and got to see it. That is quite an effect. But Pete, they leave a little something, something in their wake. Yeah, I'm watching this scene thinking, okay, did they just beam them all up to the shuttle bay? What have, what have they done with the poor people they're there to defend? Uh, and they've, they've left these bombs, uh, not unlike fireworks, to first take out the bad guys, and now they've disappeared, where the little girl asks, who was it that saved us? Yeah, who was that masked man, if you will? Which initially it was like, well, wait, they need to finally blew up these three ships with one thing. They need to hop back to drop off crates of food or whatever it might be. But then I kind of say to myself, Lorca is so into the stealthy nature of this that I think he wants yeah. to get that reputation out there that sometimes the Federation sends the ship that appears and disappears and... And it, 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 it's, it's the discovery. Let the, let the legend precede it. Um, and we get a sense there's a montage on the ship. There's a montage on Corvan 2. Everybody's happy. It's all been a great success. Except for that ripper, Pete, that just looks kind of like, kind of looks like the sad old tiger at the zoo. And, and Burnham is, is feeling that as well. The noises, the, the, the humanity in an animal and her reaction to it um, that helps us to feel this is in some way not the way this animal should be kept, should be treated. Again, it's the science, not the weaponization of something for war, though they save lives. Um, and how the two can sometimes be exclusive. Back we go to the Shinzo, where Vok has been left in the ready room, left to die uh, in the nest of the vermin. And uh, Vok, again, kind of evoking the spirit of Takovma, saying that this won't be his end. And uh, as he's saying that, Lorel beams in, uh, saying that she lied in order to save him. And then there's Pete, there's just another really tense moment there you know it's almost like like Vok is ready to to read poetry and have furniture hurled at him but <laughs> but, but but they keep it they keep it professional Lorel is all in with Vok, the true torchbearer that she believes in uh she has stolen a raider and she's going to take him to the matriarchs who will teach him a new thing or two or ten it comes to the cost pete what's this cost everything 
Wait, and that's I just like, want to. <laughs> I was just gonna say that's like a, a a cliffhanger moment for our for our, our our Klingon story for the episode. Yeah, but again, with this holographic image of the Vulcan haircutted Burnham and learning the date that she graduated the Vulcan Science Academy and the the blame the again having eaten the the one woman in the holographic image and clearly just like a Lorca uh Valk has this Ahab aspect it's it's more of a religious overtone it's out of worship of Tukovma and and what he started that he feels he must destroy uh Burnham this has become personal for him towards another person who uh took the life of Tukovma so whatever this sacrifice of everything is going to be and and it's not a something it's everything obviously there's cause in his life, in his existence, to commit to that. We cut back to Burnham in the menagerie. She's there with spores to feed the moaning, woeful beast. She apologizes to it. I think that we're all, you know, I'm sticking with my analogy of, you know, the the old sick tiger at the zoo where you just say, we did a bad thing keeping it here, even though it was well taken care of and fed steak and whatnot. Something's not right. Later in her quarters, the camera shows us that the, the package from Georgiou is still unopened. Tilly arrives, saying that everyone is talking about how Burnham helped save so many people down there. She's going to have a new reputation to deal with. Um, the dinging continues as Tilly, Tilly nervously talks about her critical mother and talks about how Burnham should be unafraid about opening that package that has traveled across the galaxy. Uh, Tilly notes that Burnham tamed the beast and Burnham is afraid of nothing. The implication being, don't be afraid of opening that before this episode ends. And Tilly even helps the situation by leaving. So Pete, is Burnham ready? I think that the story tells us that she is having (laughs) gone through this. She wasn't at the beginning of the episode. I, I love that the thing continued to chime and where uh, Sylvia Tilly was about to put words in the mouth of her mother who only ever teased her about her hair. uh, She instead empowers this other woman, something that that also came out of that that New York comic con panel that we were witness to yesterday. Um, And here, again a a woman who empowered another one and i love that the assumption of the last will and testament is that burnham has gone on to command of her own ship likely the shenzhou but uh possibly another one and that she has died and that she's going to give her the the pep talk and uh you know tell her to continue to nurture that uh, curiosity and that uh, exploratory side that she has here um, by giving her her uh, gift that uh, has has been her most beloved possession handed down uh, throughout her family for centuries 
but to keep looking into the mysteries there, to keep her eyes and her heart always open, that she's proud of her as she would be of a daughter. And the the line that really got me at the end was to take care of those in your care, something that the Georgiou in the very limited time that we saw that character seemed to always put first and foremost from taking on Burnham seven years ago to her, her last moments with her aboard the sarcophagus ship and she opens it and it's a telescope and it, it, it's, it's really the only way that this episode can end. Pete, sounds like there's a threat analysis coming on in. Where do you want to start things? Let's begin with Valk, Matt. Uh, though he is left with the, the tatters of Tacoma's ship and Laurel is, uh, is in his uh, command, um, this is somebody who's, who's looking for answers. He's trying to maintain a direction, but there's some uncertainty and, and I like the way he's, he's cast in this role as somebody trying to walk the line that Takovma laid down for him, this messianic, uh, promise, but six months here, they've, they've been adrift trying to, uh, you know, restore things and, and the war is on and they're not a part of it. This is not where I expected we would catch up with the Klingons. Let me tell you why Vok is maybe the most dangerous of the Klingons that are out there. And, and I don't say this to be cute, although it is going to have some resonance to the world we live in today. He is the most dangerous Klingon because he's a religious fundamentalist. He, he is seeing seeing things through the lens of trial and and fate and faith and i'm certainly not saying that those things don't exist i'm not trying to take away from the faith of others but you know where 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 he has starving people who have been abandoned by the other klingons he's not thinking completely in the real world uh, of hey, all it's going to take is you know a, a catered lunch, and I lose everybody. He's just so so convinced as to the one path of of goodness and of of rightness that he's not he's not looking left or right to see uh, to see the coal is coming or to see that Laurel may double cross him. Although that's ultimately not the case. Um, and I think that if we are meant to get more out of uh more out of the klingons this season than we ever have before which was also floated at new york comic-con better understanding the other i mean he he is the other that has uh, continued to show up in in recent memory whether you want to say in the last 15 years 20 years more than that he is the other who is who is convinced of their way at the exclusion of all others even at the exclusion of those who think similarly just not the same yeah and with laurel we have somebody we have a female and again we've pointed out that we've seen klingon females before but there the the treachery was always in your face um with the duras sisters uh to to a less extent with uh with kalar with uh 
um, the the mate of uh, Worf, who was the first Klingon female we we met with the Next Generation. But um, Lorel calculating, she's scheming. I'm I'm so interested to see what this matriarchal Klingon situation with the House of Mokai is. Uh, we saw the, the cool jewelry they wear on their face. I'm I'm really looking forward to whatever's going to come there. What do you think of Laurel? I mean, the the character is helped by the massive interaction that Mary Chifo has had with the fans, whether it was at the convention in Vegas or just online, particularly relative to how much she has been in so far. The the you know we've seen Laurel coming for months and months and months. Um, and, and, and uh, I mean, not to not to repeat what you said and repeat discussions we've had in the past. The notion that the two best Klingon females we we ever had before her, you know, the Dura sisters. Well, let's not forget that there were special areas in their in their Klingon uniform to make sure you you saw some of the curvy bits. I mean, here Laurel is not presented in that way. She's not. Pre- I mean. There's this, there's this magnetism that these actors are able to come up with, with each other through the latex, where you don't need lines like, you know, I would like to take you to my cabin. You know, there's, there's nothing that's overtly flirty. It's just acting, man. It's the eyes. It's the closeness. Um, but you sense that she is drawn to Vak for the purity of his leadership. Now, might that lead to somewhere physical? I'm not saying that she's she's saying no, but she's a, she's a true believer, but she's smart enough to have one foot in the real world where the coals of the world are going to come and go, "Hey, I can just pull the rug out from you with, you know, two two barrels of blood wine and a and a, you know, a catered cold lunch." Um and to me that's even I mean yeah maybe if Cole if Vok is the most dangerous she's the most powerful because she's she is looking left and right and she is thinking through the options and she is considering things from perspectives beyond her own conviction and then we have Cole who shows up and uh one minute he's uh making nice and then hey I'm going to steal your cloaking ship and uh, fracture the empire again. Uh, so he lacks the vision of Takuvma and his disciples. Um, so that's going to really prioritize the mission that Laurel puts Valk on uh, for their development of what Takuvma started. Yes, but just as we know that once this war ends and once we can get back to the the Federation living up to its best ideals, that we are headed towards that place of pure hope that we see on Kirk's Enterprise, we also know where this Klingon story will end. Less A, a less fractured situation, certainly if we think of the Klingons as seen in the original series and in the movies, uh, less internally fractured, or at least the public face is less uh, fractured. Also, massive, massive use of cloaking technology. So whether it's Cole or somebody else, somebody is taking this single ship with its single cloaking device, uh, and somebody's going to propagate it pretty darn fast. 
Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember the use of cloaked Klingon ships in the original series. I think at a certain point they have a cloaking device because they, I think it was a script thing where that's that the behind the scenes reason is the Klingons got it because of a script editing thing during the original series. But we know how, how widespread this is going to be and how quickly it will be widespread technology. So, you know, Cole is betting big on that technology. He's not maybe betting on Tukovma leading everyone to Stovakor, but he's he's in on a winning a winning uh, success for this plane of existence that we're on. Pete, we have a long range sensor scan underway. Where are we headed with some of this stuff? Let's take a look at the eating of humans, Matt. Um, could it have been a situation where their replicators were down or damaged? Or is that a thing that Takovma uh, taught them or have they adapted it? You, you eat your foe. I uh, I will admit I don't have you know memory alpha in front of me, I, so I don't know if there had ever been reference to Klingons eating uh, eating the, their prisoners, eating the dead of the enemy, that kind of thing. It strikes me as something that the Klingons, and, and, and again, I'm not I'm not trying to suggest oh is this stuff they've already covered prior to this point in the timeline. It strikes me as something the Klingons used to do. And that maybe they kind of got out of that habit. And just as just as Vok is trying to bring back this fundamentalist existence, part of it is going to be that notion of eat the heart of your enemy, eat the skin of your enemy. Um, so that's how I'm reading it right now, that maybe it was an old school thing and he's bringing it back. How about the tardigrade, Matt? This condition, whether it's, sick whether it just wants a friend uh the 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 weak growling at the end of the episode um is it is it it's something that we can solve is this thing terminal is it a result of it having been enlarged if that even happened what what's up with our tardigrade our our, our ripper right right so i have a few thoughts first is uh, it, it took the combination of the effects work, the sound design, and Sonika Martin-Green to make us feel sympathy for this hard-shell space cat bear that killed uh, two people on screen last episode, one person on screen this episode, and had the implied killing of uh, 11 other Klingons. You know, it, I mean, this thing is... This is the tiger that got loose from the zoo, uh, or or in, in our neck of the woods, the tiger that got loose from you know the, the local theme park that swears it wasn't them, um, and has now or the horda. I think they're definitely they the show are definitely taking some cues from the horda because we feel sympathy for this thing and we we have felt it so quickly. I also want to point out, let's not forget that that you know. Whether it was this tardigrade or whether there was another one, and I don't think that's quite clear. Uh, on the Glen, I'm referring to the misuse. Just, just the one. There was. The a, mis- there was only one. The misuse of it resulted in the catastrophic loss of all hands on the ship. So, I 
as it's brought back to the pen at the end, it did kind of cross my mind like, oh, you're just, you're not just going to let it like graze in the in the spore forest. Why are we sending it back to the cage? I feel bad for it now that I understand that it's not at home in the cage. Of course, it would be more at home in the spore forest. Um, so incredible sympathy for it. But I also want to remind everyone that this thing is also a ticking time bomb that killed however many thousands of people or hundreds of people that were on the Glen. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Pete, we have some tweets to share first from our pal Bob Keeley. That's at R Keeley, K-E-E-L-E-Y. He says, really liking the character of Tilly. And, uh, and, uh, I think that we're all on the same page for that. We're all hashtag team Tilly. And, uh, I'll just mention a slight behind the scenes moment, Pete. We got a really, uh, really thoughtful, heartfelt email from Bob last week, making sure that we're not working too hard on the podcast <laughs> for fun while we have other things going on, like, you know, our, our jobs and we each have our spouses and, you know, we, we, we all have things going on in our lives. So his, his appreciation was uh, was very, very, uh, or his concern was very, very much appreciated. I want to take a minute yes. to publicly tip tip the hat to that. Good news is we're still chugging along. Uh, we still have some energy after New York Comic Con to be here talking <laughs> Star Trek. So Listen, this um, stuff is our uh, mycelial spores, you know, whether it's Trek, whether it's, uh, the, all the goodness to come out of New York Comic Con that we're going to bring you the, the next couple of days. Um, you know, we, we were unable to podcast in humans Friday night because we're at Comic Con watching the pilot of uh, the Runaways, which won't be on your TVs, on your, on your Hulus for uh, many, many weeks. So it's like, how do you fit it all in? But certainly appreciate the concern. We're, we're all fine here. We're, we're fine now. How, how are you? <laughs> uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll mention on that note, Pete, what did Captain Kirk's shirt say in Star Trek five? Go climb it, a rock, go climb a rock. Are there times where this could be a little tough schedule wise? Yeah. It's about climbing the rock. And if we reach a point where yes. we, we need one less rock to climb, then you know what? The gods of TV We'll take one of the shows away or something. <laughs> Until then, they let's climb will. the rock. Uh, we have a uh, yes, we have so we... a we have a uh, tweet from Chadwick Adams eighty three on Twitter, um, and he's responding to my tweet about how they called out Elon Musk. The show called out Elon Musk as possibly you know or in the certainty of the star trek future in line with the wright brothers and cockrum he said uh this is all which is awesome it's awesome that they did this they have high hopes for elon musk as i do quote bettering ourselves and the rest of humanity hashtag star trek hashtag tesla hashtag spacex hashtag solar city i don't know if any of those technologies he's working on are gonna reach national or global fruition but that's the scale he's thinking at, which sure as hell beats. Can we improve profits for the fourth quarter by, I don't know, upping rates another dollar <laughs> a month or by figuring out a way to deny you for a pre-existing condition or figuring out we'll use a little less brake fluid in the braking system of this car? Like, it's an exciting time for the future. Uh, last tweet I'm going to share, Pete, is uh, our our other pal, Jen Phillips 721 owner of uh, one of those shiny badges that we're looking to give out. 
Uh, she says, the USS Enterprise may be the most iconic, but the USS Discovery is the most, and Pete, I'm going to edit the one word here slightly because we try and keep <laughs> it clean, the, the most witching starship I've ever seen. Uh, and she includes that, uh, the, the picture that's been out there, kind of of the rainbow background almost. Um, right. And uh, it's funny, earlier today I went back and watched the 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 yucky first flight footage shared at san diego two summers ago oh what an ugly design in the ship and i'm I'm prepared to watch it with new eyes and i'm like oh the design's gonna be totally different it's basically the same design they just added they added the cutout area and um made some nacelle changes but it's basically the same ship that we saw forever ago let's remember too when we first saw that um, a, a year ago this summer, it was witness the test flight of the discovery. So now knowing that this is a, a prototypical ship, the sister ship destroyed, scuttled by this ship, um, the, the resonance comes further to the fore. And, uh, yeah, I think the design has grown on a lot of people. It, it's classic and, and even goes back to 70s era sketches um, and, and uh, you know, the Macquarie work there. But at the same time, it's updated. And, yeah, the effect that they get with the with the spore drive flips and it spins and then it warps it's it's great let's let's see more and more of it again through these first four episodes they have not spared any expense from an effects uh expenditure speaking of those expenditures pete we're not in the 23rd century yet we are you know we're not in this cashless existence we are so happy that we are listener supported by those who go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek I uh, want to make mention that this is the time of year as we get closer to the uh, get closer to December, which is when uh, w- when some of those yearly expenses uh, accrue, and then there's some some stuff that's more uh, more spread out. But end of uh, end of December, I believe, is the big the big hit. So we uh, continue to keep all the past episodes on and continue to have our bandwidth so we can upload a whole bunch of stuff each month. And uh, big thank you as always to our crew on uh, patreon.com slash fantastic geek keeping the uss fantastic geek flying in the sky yes you really help us with uh your contributions whether it's at the lowest level of a of a dollar and you're going to get exclusive podcast content uh in return in addition to the feeling that you're helping us out and then there are all sorts of different levels to contribute at that are going to get you different perks. So thank you again for checking out patreon.com slash fantastic geek uh, and, and keeping the, uh, the spore drive, uh, you know, in play. Now, right before that, we had our hailing frequencies coming in. If you want to be in touch with the podcast, we have tons and tons of ways to do it. Let's start with you, Pete. You, you, you are the self-styled captain there sitting in the, <laughs> in the captain's chair. How can people send a hail to you? You can find me on Twitter as Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. 
9,525 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can reach out to the podcast anytime you want. We are Fantastic Geek, Fantastic with the P and the H. Visit fantasticgeek.com. Send an email to fantasticgeek at gmail.com. Uh, we are Fantastic Geek on Twitter, where uh, our, our three uh, our three communiques came from tonight. Uh, you can check us out on uh, on Instagram under Fantastic Geek. A ton of New York Comic Con pictures, probably even more to be to be posted. And even probably we have stuff we have yet to post. Uh, but wait, Pete, I think there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word. Just another way to keep in touch, you know, if subspace radio goes down or something else. Well, with that, Pete, I will say to all our listeners, Habso Sleek Quich. You can figure out what that means on your own. For some of you, it's a compliment. For some of you, maybe not. That's all I'll say. And I will leave you, Pete, with the final word. Shall we uncouple? <laughs>